So we are now past the midway point in our eight-week series on the parables of Jesus. Today we're going to look at something a little bit different. Uh, We're going to explore what was one of Jesus' favorite parable themes, but which we haven't talked a lot about in this series so far, which is money. Money is, of course, a little bit of a tricky thing. Sometimes people are uncomfortable talking about money in church. I have found that pastors are very comfortable counseling people on all kinds of moral issues, anger, racism, dishonesty, infidelity, but when it comes to money, they can get a little uncomfortable. Money, some people say, is private. I'm happy to look at my dishonesty. I'm happy to look at my infidelity. I will look at my anger. Just don't talk to me about how I use my money. That's private. But do you know who loved to talk about money? Jesus. Over a third of Jesus' parables are explicitly about people's relationship with money. And today we're going to look at one of those parables, but I think the most basic question is simply why did Jesus care about people's relationship with money? And I think the answer is that our relationship with money reveals the condition of our hearts. And Jesus cared about our hearts. Some of you might remember a famous quote from Jesus. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He knew that when people talk about their priorities, they often fool themselves. They say their priorities are one thing, but if you really want to know what's important to a person, look at where they spend their money. Don't just listen to the words that they say. Look at their credit card statement because that is often a truer indicator of the condition of their hearts. Now, what makes this especially ironic is that we live in a culture in which money has become an idol. As you know, idols are things that take the place of God in our lives. And here's how you know if money has become an idol in your life. You find yourself saying things like this. If I just had more money... I would be happy. If I just had a little more money, I'd feel peace. If I just had a little more money, I'd feel secure. Now, the reason why money is an idol is because these are promises that money can't keep because idols lie. Money cannot bring true happiness, peace, and security. And to demonstrate this, I want to begin the sermon with a story. A few years ago, the New York Times ran an op-ed by a man named Sam Polk. Polk was a wealthy Wall Street trader until he became disillusioned with the culture of Wall Street, and he left to start a nonprofit that helps low-income families access healthy food, a nonprofit that he still runs today. Now, the backstory is that during college, this man became aware that he was addicted to drugs and alcohol. He worked with a counselor to get sober, which he said was quite difficult, but through a lot of hard work, he managed to stay away from drugs and alcohol. When he graduated college, he dove headfirst into the life of a bond trader. He moved up to New York City, he got an apartment, he got a job in a big firm, he worked long hours, and he quickly moved up the ladder. Within a few years, this young man was making over a million dollars a year which meant that he was making more money than he had ever dreamed of making. 
But he began to notice something unusual. The more money he made, the less satisfied he was. Because the more money he made, he discovered, the more money he wanted, right? Do you remember that question I asked a few minutes ago? If, if I only had a little more money, then maybe I would feel at peace. Well, that was not the case for Sam Polk. For him, <clears throat> the more money he made, the more he wanted. He saw people in his firm making $10 million a year, and his $1 million a year did not seem like enough. He wrote in his op-ed, <clears throat> I wanted a billion dollars. Right? At this point, Polk was, he was still seeing a counselor as a way of maintaining his sobriety from drugs and alcohol, and his counselor began to tell him that his attitude toward money looked a lot like his attitude toward drugs and alcohol. She said, Sam, this is another addiction. And he says that he began to realize that he, just like he used drugs and alcohol, he was using money to fill a spiritual hole within him. Money made him feel temporarily secure, but underneath was deep insecurity. He says that he began to look around him and he saw that other people had the same addiction. These are his words. Ever see what a drug addict is like when he's used up his junk? He'll do anything. Walk 20 miles in the snow, rob a grandma to get a fix. Wall Street was like that. In the months before bonuses were handed out, the trading floor started to feel like a neighborhood in the wire when the heroin runs out. Now something began to change for him in what ended up being his last year on Wall Street. He said he was given a bonus of $3.6 million, and his reaction is that he was outraged because he was expecting a bonus of $8 million. And his anger, he says, scared him. And he began to question whether his career actually reflected his moral values. I'm going to quote from the op-ed again. He says, I'd always looked enviously at the people who earned more than I did. Now, for the first time, I was embarrassed for them and for me. I made in a single year more than my mom made her whole life. I knew that wasn't right. Yes, I was good with numbers. I had marketable talents. But in the end, I didn't really do anything. I was a derivatives trader, and it occurred to me the world would hardly change at all if credit derivatives ceased to exist. Not so nurse practitioners. What had seemed normal now seemed deeply distorted." End quote. Now, I don't share this story because I want to speak ill of Wall Street. There are plenty of responsible ethical people working on Wall Street, and in fact, we need responsible ethical people working on Wall Street because, of course, that has a big impact on the rest of the economy. But because Wall Street is the center of monetary power in the world, it, of course, attracts people who are addicted to money. And we have to ask ourselves, is it even worth it? I mean, that's what Polk begins to ask. But he got the promotions. He made the money. He was wealthy beyond any possible expectation. And yet at the end of all of that, he had no peace, no security, no happiness. That's how monetary idolatry affects the individual person. But as Polk began to see, it also affects the wider world because he started to ask, I mean, is my work even helping anybody? 
all of these hours that I've put in making all this money, would it even matter if I stopped doing what I'm doing? And that was a really good insight because what he started to see is that he didn't exist in isolation. The choices that he made in his life actually affected other people's lives. And that is a long introduction to our parable today from the Gospel of Luke. This is from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts on this, your holy word, be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. Now, the reason I told you that story about that bond trader is because the protagonist of this parable is a lot like him. The protagonist of this parable is a rich man whose land produced abundantly. Imagine a farmer who has bumper crops year after year. His farm is unbelievably productive, and thus he becomes incredibly wealthy. Now, the first question is, who is responsible for all of this amazing wealth, and I want to draw your attention to the first line of this parable. It says, the ground, the land of the rich man produced abundantly. And so from the very beginning of this story, Jesus is telling us that all wealth is borrowed. All wealth is a gift. This man didn't produce abundantly. His land is what created all of this wealth. It's the goodness of the earth that produces, and no one, of course, owns the earth. We merely borrow it for a few years. But, of course, this man doesn't see things that way. He thinks this is his wealth. He only thinks of himself. He's certainly not thinking of all the good that he might do with all of this excessive grain. He's not thinking of all of the needy people that he might feed with all of this excessive grain. In fact, the only problem is in his mind is that he has so much grain that his barns aren't big enough to store all of it. And so he thinks to himself, what am I going to do? I just don't have enough space to store all of this wealth. And at this point, he might have answered, again, maybe I should give some of this away. 
Maybe there are other people who could use this grain, or maybe I could sell it, and then at least I could give the money away to people who need it. No. This is what he says. I'll tear down all these small barns, and then I'll build bigger ones. And they'll be big enough to store all of this incredible enormity of grain that I have. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And so do you see what this story is really about? Security. This man is terrified that he won't have enough. You think you're insecure because you happen to be poor or middle class? Guess what? The rich feel insecure too because money is an idol. And with idols, there's never enough. Sam Polk made $3.6 million. He was insecure because he wanted to make $8 million. The man in this story is the same way. He's trying to create a life in which he will never struggle again. And I think we have to ask the question, is that even a desirable goal? Can money even possibly make us secure for the rest of our lives? Well, not according to this story, because look what happens next. He proceeds with his plan. He tears down his barns. He builds new, larger barns that have the capacity to hold the enormous amount of grain that his land has produced. Finally, he has enough grain for a lifetime of comfort. He then, at this point, says to himself, soul, you have it made. We have money for 30, 40 years. Now we can relax, eat, drink, be merry. Guess what happens that very night? He dies. Kind of ironic, isn't it? He's done all of this work to create security, but the truth is that he was just as fragile and vulnerable and mortal as somebody with no money. Now, I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, well, he had the right idea. It's a really a shame he died early. I mean, if he had just survived, then he would have really had it made. I mean, think about it. If his plan had worked, if he had lived 20, 30 years longer, he really could have lived the good life. He really could have just taken it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Not according to Jesus. Jesus says even if his plan had worked, he would not have had true life because Jesus says real life does not consist in the abundance of possessions by which he meant even if the guy's plan had worked out perfectly, he still wouldn't have had what Jesus calls true life. So what is true life? True life is knowing that the only security a person can possibly have is faith in God. No person, no matter how wealthy or powerful, of course, can live forever. No person can find love in wealth, not real love. I mean, maybe money can get people to do things for you. That's possible. But, of course, that's not love. Real love, real life is when you have something larger to live for. Real life would have been if this rich man had said, gosh, I've got a lot of grain. I'm going to start a food bank. There are needy people in the world. I'm going to share my wealth with them. And you know what? That's ironically what his soul really needed. He thought his soul needed to just have fun. What his soul really needed 
was a sense of purpose, a sense that there is some reason why he's alive on this earth. The larger truth is that the human soul, all human souls, long to be connected with God through a life of service and devotion. That is what our souls deeply desire. And that, of course, is the great irony of our consumer culture. We have more physical comfort than any generation in the history of the world. We can buy virtually any consumer good and it will be delivered to our doorstep within a couple of days. We have more entertainment than anybody has ever had. We have more access to technology. We have achieved an extraordinary level of economic prosperity. And yet people in our culture are more miserable than any civilization in the history of the world. Isn't that interesting? About two months ago, the New York Times ran an article with some alarming statistics. It said that in the last 15 years, depression and suicide attempts among young people have risen over, risen over 60%. And note that those figures are from 2019, before the COVID pandemic. Imagine what the depression rates are like now. And the really interesting thing is that doctors don't understand it. The article says that this increase in depression has baffled doctors because on the surface, life is so much better for young people than it ever was before. Here's a quote from a psychologist at the University of California. She says, young people are more educated, less likely to get pregnant, to use drugs. They're less likely to die of accident or injury. By most markers, kids are doing fantastic and thriving, and yet the rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide stop us in our tracks. It's baffling, isn't it? Kids are physically more secure than they ever were in the past. They have more education. They are less likely to die by accident or injury. They have lots more stuff, and yet they are more anxious, depressed, and suicidal. It makes you ask the question, where does real security come from? Does real security come from being physically safe and having lots of stuff? Or does it come in the knowledge that you are a precious child of God? And maybe that's what kids are unaware of today. Here's another way to ask this question. Does security come from a life of ease or a life of meaning? Does that make sense? Jonathan Haidt has done some remarkable work looking at what he calls the fragility of young people. He has taught at NYU for a number of years, and he's noticed over his time there that these incoming classes of young people are more and more insecure and fragile, and they get offended more easily, and they get scared more easily, and they're less resilient than the kids he used to teach. And he says that the real problem is that kids today are never exposed to any challenges. They are shielded from negative emotions. They are shielded from challenging physical environments. And like an immune system that needs to be exposed to pathogens in order to grow strong, our kids have to be given the chance to fall down every once in a while so that they can learn to pick themselves back up. In other words, an easy life is not a good goal for anybody, child or adult. And therefore, we have to look at how we use our money because if our money is being used simply to create physical security for us, 
simply to create a life in which there are no challenges, in which we can eat, drink, and be merry, then it's really not even being used for our own best interests. Maybe we are storing up grain because we think that we, in the future, won't have to experience any stress, any challenges, any dependence on other people. We think our money can shield us from those challenges, and it actually can. Money can do that. It can create a life that is, on the surface, a lot easier and without so many challenges, but is that what life is for? That's the question. Jesus says life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he tells us what life is for. He says life is about being rich toward God. Now that's another interesting phrase. The goal of life is to be rich toward God. So how do we do that? I think there's a very simple answer. You share what you have. That's it. You start to see that your wealth is not owned. It's merely borrowed. It's a gift. From the very beginning, it's a gift. You can't take it to the grave. You're going to have to get rid of it at some point. You start to see that any meaning in your life comes not from isolating yourself or protecting yourself or for create, you know, create a, creating a life of ease for yourself, but rather by going out there and extending your life to help others. You start to see that contrary to what our society says, being rich actually won't make you happy, but rather being generous is the only thing that can ever make you feel good about yourself and therefore secure with God. Now, if you want to know where to start, I think some of you are waiting for this, you can start right here. <laughs> Let's get really real. How about that? We're in the middle of a capital campaign. That is very exciting, but it's also currently underfunded. We are going to transform this building so that it is a better and safer place for our kids and for people who are disabled and for tourists and for visitors. These are incredibly exciting goals. And so if you have barns full of grain that you are saving for a rainy day, I would ask you to consider investing that grain right here. Because what you might find is that by sharing your wealth, you start to share other parts of your life. You start to care more about what's happening in this community. You start to show up more. You start to come to coffee hour. You meet more people. You learn about their lives. You start to volunteer for mission work. You start to help us do a better job of reaching out to those in need because now you're not living in isolation anymore. You're part of something larger. And guess what? Now your soul really is happy because it has a sense of purpose. There's something really interesting about service that I think people don't think about very much. If you serve, it means you believe that you have something valuable to share. It means that you know you are a beloved child of God. Service is in some ways a selfish thing to do because if you serve, it means that you know you have something valuable to offer. On the other hand, if you isolate yourself, it might mean that you don't know that you have something to offer, that you don't understand that you do have gifts that can make a difference. Let's end in prayer. God, you call all of us to serve, 
not because of guilt, but because sharing your gifts makes us come alive. We thank you for the many blessings that we have received. We ask you to open our hearts so that we might share those gifts with others, that we all might live graciously in your name. In Christ we pray, amen.